What I share today, I doubt very much you're going to hear anything new. Nothing new today, no new revelation. But what I do hope happens that by the power of the Holy Spirit, our sense of wonder will dramatically increase when we consider who our God is. How many know that the word mystery means you're never going to fathom the whole thing? It just gets increasing in wonder and amazement at what God has done. So all I can wish for by the end of this morning that we would worship God, this God who forgives us with everything within us, from hearts that simply cannot contain the gratitude. You know what? It's okay to be radical. Amen? It's okay to be radical. Because anybody who knows the joy of forgiveness and deliverance has got something to shout about. Amen? Got something to shout about. We've seen the joy of being forgiven. We looked at that already. Last week we tried to grasp a little bit the immensity of evil that is in the human heart that needs to be forgiven. After that, who can argue that the heart's greatest need is not to be loved? The heart's greatest need is to be forgiven. To be forgiven. Who can understand the immense relief that David experienced when we looked at Psalm 32? The immense relief when he experienced in his soul when he realized unbelievably that God had forgiven him. That his transgressions were lifted. That his sins were hidden. And his iniquities were not imputed to him. I tell you, it's radical stuff. It really is radical. We could see from last week that man definitely needs a heart transplant. But who can afford it? Who can do it? Who can pay the price of getting that heart transplanted? It says in Psalm 49, verses 6 to 9, about those who trust in their wealth. Listen to what it says. It says, Though they that trust in their wealth and they boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them, how many? None. That means zero. None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious. It continues, ceases forever, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. We have to ask the question, we know that we can't afford it. People who trust in their wealth, because they trust in their wealth, are not willing to share their wealth, even with people who do need help. The rich of the world are still rich, and the poor of the world are still poor, and there's really not a willingness. Otherwise, most of the problems would be solved if we would distribute our wealth. But there's not a willingness because we trust in that wealth, and we don't see it as a tool in the hands of God to be bread to the hungry or clothed to the naked. There's not a willingness to trust, to, do, to share that wealth. But who can understand what it cost God that you and I might be forgiven? And I got some good news. And He is willing to share His wealth. <clears throat> That's worth a better shout than that. He is willing to share His wealth. Redemption for you and me is free, but it's incredibly expensive to God. Incredibly expensive to God. I want to quote for you again from Exodus 34, 5-7. to 
where we have seen that it is God's nature to forgive. If you're to look in his heart, it's what causes his heart to pump. Every time it beats, it says forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. That's his nature. He has to be true to himself, and he cannot do otherwise. When Moses said, show me your glory, listen to what God said. It says, and the Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood with them there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord... The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What is God's nature? What is His heart when it beats? What do you hear? I hear the word forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. That's what he is at the core and the center of his being. Forgiveness. What an amazing God it is. Now, it costs God dearly to forgive us our sin simply because there's a costly consequence to our sin. That cost is plainly stated Many times in Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 18 says several times, Don't blame your parents for your behavior. Don't blame the children for your behavior. It specifically says many times in Ezekiel 18, The soul that sins, it shall die. The soul that sins, it shall die. You can't shift the blame to anybody else. At the end, we're responsible. When Ezekiel said that, this is not, he's not making a reference to the fact that God is just a vengeful, angry God. But it is a simple statement of fact that what happens when sin enters the story of anybody's life. The fact is this, God is the source of life, and if you decide to cut yourself off from God, who happens to be the source of life, you haven't got any life, and you're going to die. The soul that sins is cut off from God as their source of life, and therefore they die. The New Testament says the same thing. You recognize Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. The wa- Did you know that sin pays wages? In the book of Romans, sin is likened to a master, a boss. It's likened to an employer that has complete control over everybody it employs. He's like the boss of a work gang, and he pays wages. And those wages are death. In the Old Testament, sin is an act of violation that ends in death. In the New Testament, sin has dominion over us and is a slavery that ends in death. But the fact is, while you are still living, it already is paying out wages. While you're st- it doesn't wait till you die for you to receive your wages. While you're living, it already pays out its wages. It's already in actuality working itself out. You're not going to die, you're already dying. Sin is already paying its wages. Sin has separated people from a loving God. Sin has been paying its wages. Our physical bodies are decaying now. Sin is already paying its wages. Sickness ravishes the bodies of many people. Sin is already paying its wages. Relationships are strained. Fellowship is broken. Marriages fail. Sin is already paying its wages. 
The enjoyment of life is lost because you can't escape feelings of guilt and shame. Sin is already paying its wages. The fact is, the death that sin brings is a slow process, but completely eternal in the end. The wages are paid out slowly. The death that sin inflicts comes in degrees. The suffering that people go through in the present life is really the smallest part there is to pay for the price of sin. There is an eternity to come after physical death. Emotional, mental, and physical pain in this life is merely death giving you an advance on its wages. It's already at work. God had made it very clear right from the very beginning that sin would carry this awful sentence of death. Back in the Garden of Eden, God had said, For in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. In the day you... Death begins the moment you sin. And it pays its wages the rest of your life until you cross over into eternity. The New Testament says the same thing. James put it this way. When lust conceives, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished paying you its wages, brings forth death. So sin carries its own penalty. Death is merely the consequence of choosing to cut ourselves off from God who is the source of life. If you cut yourself off from the source of life, there's no alternative but death. But as I said, death is not instantaneous. It's progressive. It begins immediately, but all through your physical days, it slowly pays out its wages until they're paid in full. Once the process begins, it's not reversible. Have you ever had a hive full of wasps in your house? Hope not. You ever had the experience? No? You're blessed here in Northern Ireland. Have you ever had a hive of bees somewhere where it shouldn't be? No? You're blessed here in Northern Ireland. I tell you. But if you have a hive full of wasps that makes its home... In your, in your roof of your house or something. You don't want them around. You go get an insecticide and you, you spray them. But you know what happens when you spray them? They get angry. And you know what happens? They get more active. And you say to yourself, this is not working. Did I buy the wrong stuff? This is not working. And they seem to get more active. But if you dare watch them for a while after you've inflicted them with this insecticide, you'll discover that one by one they lose all their motor abilities. They fly around in a frenzy, but then they lose their ability to fly, then they lose their ability to walk, and then they just die completely. It took a while for the process of death to take its toll. They were in the process of dying, even when it looked like they were extremely active. They just lose their ability until they finally perish. That's what death is doing to us. Sin sets death in motion the moment sin is participated in. Now I'm going to make here a very obvious statement. A very obvious statement. Since sin always leads to a complete and a full death, nobody, no person can pay the penalty of sin and survive. The fact that they die means they can't pay the penalty. They can't do anything about it. They're powerless 
to resist death. So, if nobody can pay the penalty and survive, what are we to do? What can man do? Is there a solution? I'm not going to tell you anything new today, but should make you shout anyway. Is there a solution? Come on, get ready to shout. Are you ready? God is a God of grace. How many are glad for that? God is a God of grace. Let me quote it to you again. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God is a God of grace. Nothing new, but it should warm your heart anyway. Amen? Now, long, uh, what kind of a God is this? Long before God created the heavens and the earth, God, who knows everything, He knew that the man He would create with a free will would choose the road of self-dependence. Would choose to set aside God's ways and God's commandments. And he also knew that when man would do that, that man's complete inability to throw off the power of sin. We sang it. Everyone needs compassion. Everyone needs forgiveness. The kindness of a Savior. Now, can you just imagine God up there in heaven and there's the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. I don't know how you can imagine those things and all the angels up there and watching this man that he created. And and then when Adam sinned, what did God do? Did he say, oh no, what are we going to do? Got to call an emergency session, everybody. Emergency, emergency. Did God have to do that? No, he didn't. God was not caught by surprise. Amen. Sin was anticipated long before He created the world. And God had provisionally propitiated sin before man was ever made a living soul. Didn't catch God by surprise. Even before creation, God made advance preparations to rescue man from all his sin and all its consequences, including death. Had it in place before he said, let there be light. He knew what man would do, and he built into the scheme of history to reconcile the problem before there ever was a problem. What kind of a God is this? Can you tell me? What kind of a God is this? Listen to these scriptures, like Matthew 25:34. It says, Then the king will say to them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He had that in mind before he created anything. Listen to Ephesians 1:4. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as He said, as I swore in my anger, if they shall enter into my rest. Listen to this. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 20. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. Somebody wants to buy your gold? Sell it. It's corruptible. (laughs) But you were redeemed from your vain conversation. Listen to this. With the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. 
but now is manifest in these last times for you. No, God was not caught by surprise. He knew if he created man with free will, he knew what man would do with that free will. He knew the burden of sin that would come upon a man. He knew the load of guilt that would be on his heart. And even before he said, let there be light, he had already ordained a way out. I tell you, that will make you shout. What kind of a God is this? No, God was not caught by surprise. So I'm asking you, what kind of a loving God do you and I worship here this today? It's amazing. Now, since death is the ultimate price that sin must exact, obviously only death can satisfy its requirements. There's no other way to pay for it because that's where sin leads. So this end result has got to be overturned somehow if anybody is ever going to be free. But nobody can afford it. Nobody can do anything about it. Are you ready to shout again? Are you ready to rejoice yet again? The fact is this, God has made a provision. And you know what that provision is? It's called substitution. Substitution. In other words, the innocent could die for the guilty. One could die on behalf of another. Amen. Aren't you glad there's an answer to this? Substitution. The innocent could die for the guilty. One could die on the behalf of another. God illustrated that ample times in the Old Testament when the sacrifices, there were burnt offerings, there were sin offerings, there were peace offerings. Over and over and over. And God is trying to establish in our minds that the death of an innocent could be substituted for the death of the guilty as long as the innocent met certain conditions. And what are those conditions? What does the innocent have to be? has to be innocent. <laughs> Otherwise, he also is guilty. He has to be perfect. He has to be without blemish. What is that requirement? The innocent has to be innocent. Otherwise, they can never be a substitute. Because they deserve the penalty of death as well. So whoever would volunteer to die as a substitute would have to be holy, have to be harmless, would have to be unimpeachable, would have to be pure, would have to be righteous, someone who is not subject to death, and on top of it, have to be willing. Well, let's go on a search. Where can you find such a person? Where is it possible? And if you could find someone who met the conditions, would they be willing? Remember, if I was to ask you, would you do it if you met the qualifications? Remember the massive debt of sin that has been piled up. Remember the absolute hardness of the human heart. Who would take on such a task? Who would freely and voluntarily do such a thing and to enter into a death that was not theirs? Can we find anybody? Can we find anybody on the earth? Is there any living person who qualifies? Is there any great leader in this world that qualifies? Is there anybody innocent? no matter how famous they are? Is there anybody wealthy, no matter how famous they are? Any powerful person in this planet? Anybody? The answer is no. Even all through history, if you, you, you study history and you have child sacrifice, you see, read it in the Old Testament. In, in history, people have offered their babies often offered young virgin girls or very young boys as a sacrifice because they assumed that that child was sinless, innocent. 
but is not so. Child sacrifice has never worked anywhere in history. The testimony of Scripture is that there is none righteous. No, not one. The testimony of Scripture is for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we could search the whole world over and there is no candidate that meets the requirements for our deliverance. So let's see if we can find anything in heaven. Maybe an angel. Maybe an angel can step forward. Pretty powerful beings, aren't they? Ever read some of the feats of those angels in your Bible? Some of the things that these angels did? How powerful and how awesome and how big they are. But angels don't qualify because angels don't die. They're not subject to death. Neither can an angel identify with the struggle that you and I live with in every day. They have no way of sympathizing with sinful man and thus they don't even experience the necessary ingredient of mercy because they can't possibly understand life as you and I live it. As a matter of fact, even angels can sin. Book of Job 4.18 says he even charges the angels with folly. Well, we're not doing very well finding anybody, are we? Why don't we check those under the earth? Those who have already died and passed on. Surely we can find someone there. Noah. What about Noah? Should we choose Noah? Your Bible says Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. Now let's go for Job. Because even God testifies there's none righteous like Job in all the earth. Should we ask Abraham if he's willing? Should we ask Moses if he's willing? Were they not outstandingly good people of faith? But the fact is, they all died. Which is an indication that they too suffered the effects of sin. They don't qualify. So we're on a search. We're in a hopeless situation. We're on a search. But I want you to listen to Isaiah 59 and verse 16. Listen to it. Isaiah 59 And verse number 16. Listen to what God said. And he saw that there was no man. And he wondered that there was no intercessor. God looked everywhere. Looked in the heavens, looked on the earth, looked under the earth. He looked everywhere. And it says, and he saw that there was no man. He wondered that there was no intercessor. So God made a decision. Listen to this decision. It will make you shout. Listen to his decision. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. What God is saying, since nobody can do it, I myself present myself as the candidate to do the work. Come on. Do we, what kind of a God is this that we worship and that we serve? In other words, what man could not do, God did for him. Do we understand the cost of our free salvation? Since God can never find a righteous being on earth, in heaven, or under the earth who would qualify, God of his own free will of his own compassionate nature, of his own very heart that demands he cannot do otherwise but forgive, this God determined from even before the foundation of the world, before he even created heaven and earth, before he created man, before he breathed into man's soul the breath of life, he determined, knowing what this man and what mankind would fully do, knowing all of this, God made the decision, I myself will become that righteous man and I will make myself subject to death so I can take the penalty. 
incredible. Absolutely incredible. So God makes a decision because this is His nature. He would humble Himself. He would take on the likeness of our flesh. He would experience the limitations and the frailty of our human life. He would make himself subject to all of life's temptations. He would learn to feel the pain of loss. And he would come into this world and he would experience the brunt of the consequences of sin and be harmless and undefiled through the whole thing and be without sin. Whew. Why does he do this? Why? The answer is simple. So that the load of my guilt can be removed from my conscience. Put it this way. Make you say amen. So the load of your guilt may be removed from your conscience. Why did he do it? So we could be free. Why did he do it? So the human heart can be forgiven and transformed. Why did he do it? So you and I can get heart transplants. Why did he do it? Because he simply can do nothing else. Because his heart goes, forgiveness, 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 forgiveness. That's who he is. What kind of a God is this? There's a psalm that says, All for love. You gave it all for love. You traded the stars above. You gave it all for love. What kind of a God is this? See, when he revealed himself to Moses, he exposed his heart. Forgiveness, 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 forgiveness. Every time it pumps, it says forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. So he can do nothing else, no matter what it will personally cost him. He has to be true to his own nature. But the cost to God is beyond our ability to understand. You sang it. I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. You see, I need to be pardoned for sin. I need my debts to be cancelled. I need freedoms and deliverance from a very corrupt heart. I need to be delivered from shame and guilt. I need the burden lifted off my soul. I need to overcome the power of sin. All that's got to be done. And to do all of those things is costly. Remember, we already quoted it, we're not redeemed with corruptible things like gold or silver, but the very precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and spot. What did it cost God to do this? tell you what it costs God heaven has a crown king and it cost heaven that crown king that's what it cost the very one for whom the heavens and the earth were created the very one who is the heir of all things the very one who sustains the whole universe by the word of his power the very one to whom angels bow in adoration is none other than the very one who yielded his life. What kind of God is this? What kind of a God is this? You see, our puny minds, and forgive me for calling our minds puny, but when it comes to try to fathoming these things, we're very puny in our thinking. Our puny minds cannot possibly understand the price that God paid. 
I want you to imagine you're in the back garden there and there's an earthworm out there that's cut. And I don't know if earthworms bleed or not, but let's pretend they do. He's cut there and some bird is about to devour him and you go, poor earthworm. Well, how about this? Why don't you become an earthworm to save it? Would you? Or you don't even take note of them. You watch the birds pick the worms and eat them and say, oh, the birds are having their breakfast. No concern for your earthworm at all. Would you become an earthworm to save it? Probably that's, no, that's nowhere even near close to the decision that God made to come and save you and me. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you would visit him? You and I wouldn't lower ourselves to the level of an earthworm, but you believe you me, God did far more than that to set my heart free. Who can fathom the forgiving nature of such a God? My goodness. But just becoming man was only part of the cost that God paid. When Jesus took on human flesh, if that wasn't enough, the other worms treated him very badly. He came unto his own, and his own didn't even receive him. Rejected of man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, he had to endure rejection from the very ones he humbled himself to become one of them. And after that, they rejected him. Part of the cost of bringing you and I a free redemption. He had to take on the penalty of the sins of the whole world. You and I grow up accustomed to sin. Part of us from day one. But he was the pure, spotless Lamb of God who for 33 years didn't know anything personally about the experience of sin. Didn't know anything about it. Surrounded by it, but it was never in him. And then one day on the cross, all of a sudden, the entire sin, in one short span of time, the entire iniquity, the entire rebellion, the power and control of sin was heaped on him in one instant. In the midst of great pain. In the midst of great anguish. Who can fathom the cost? It cost God to be true to his heart. That has to forgive. Who can fathom such love? Who can fathom it? He experienced the sense of being separated from his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness of sin. The shame that the world feels. The departure, when God's glory departs, it always brings a sense of shame. And Jesus has got this deep inner conflict tearing at his soul. What did it cost him? To forgive you and me of our sin. Who can fathom the forgiving nature of our God? And he did all of this as an innocent victim that didn't have to. Who can understand and fathom the forgiving nature of God? As the song says, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon the cross. But I got good news. Jesus paid it all. All of it. There's nothing he didn't atone for. No depth he did not experience. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it.
white as snow. I'm not just saying Jesus paid it. I'm saying Jesus paid it all. Hallelujah. He doesn't leave me with just a hint of shame. He doesn't leave me with a trace of guilt. He doesn't leave me just a little bit. Make it on your own. Jesus paid it all. You see, when he was on the cross, in his dying breath, he gave a shout. A shout. It's a shout that shook the very foundations of hell. It's a shout that made all of heaven shiggy enough and dance for joy. On the cross, he uttered these words It is finished. You sang it this morning. You tore the veil. You made a way when you said that it is done. Wow. John's Gospel is the only one that gives you those words, it is finished. Matthew, Mark, and Luke says just before he died he gave a great shout, but doesn't tell you what he shouted. John tells you what he shouted. His dying words before he commits his spirit to his Father, is, it is finished. When he said that, this is not the cry of a moan of a defeated man. It's not a sigh of patient resignation. It is a triumphant recognition that he has now fully accomplished the work that he has come to do, sin is paid in full. He hasn't left you a few pence to pay on your own. Sin has been paid in full. That means the weight of my transgressions are lifted off me. That means my sins are hidden. Good luck finding them because God hid them. That means my iniquity is not put in the ledger of my life. Take a look all you can. You won't find it. It's not imputed. This is good news. Of the four Gospels, only John will say what Jesus did next. After he says it is finished and he commits his spirit to the Father, it says, and he bowed his head. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell you that, but John says he bowed his head. What does that mean? Why does John record that detail? He bowed his head. You see, if you could read the Greek language of the New Testament, you remember the scripture where Jesus said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? It's the same word. Nowhere to bow his head. And when it says, and Jesus laid his head, bowed his head, He was saying this, My work is finished. Good night. Wow. He bowed his head. My work is finished. Good night. In the midst of all the pain, Jesus dies a peaceful death because he's dying as one who trusts his Father. None of the four Gospels describe the death of Jesus in normal terms. Every term to describe the death of Jesus in all four Gospels are quite unnatural to death. He simply bows his head. The death of Jesus is unique in every respect. As Jesus yielded himself to death, sin was defeated. For sin could do no more. The innocent had voluntarily died in my place. And death, because Jesus was sinless, had no authority over him. Couldn't keep him down. Because 
Jesus was not subject to the penalty of death. The Bible says, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I give it. Nobody, nobody can take it. Nobody has authority to do that. So I freely give it. It's because he was sinless, death could not keep Jesus down. Death has no authority over the innocent. So God vindicated the, sinless of Je- the sinlessness of Jesus by raising him from the dead. Did you sing it this morning? You have overcome the grave. Your glory fills the highest place. Tell me, what can separate me now? The bondage, dominion, and the rule of sin is broken. Its power is negated. You're looking at a forgiven man. Am I looking at forgiven people? Do we understand what this means? I tell you what, there's an enemy of your soul that hates this truth. And he tries to cloud your your brain with a lot of misunderstandings. Do you understand what it means to be forgiven? It means you have not just exchanged one cruel master for another. As if God just picks up the contract and giving you grief in your life. Some people have this poor image of God as some sort of evil taskmaster. No, you just haven't exchanged cruel taskmasters. You're not indebted to them except in a debt of gratitude. You're free. Let me tell you something else you're not. You're not a prisoner out on parole. You're not a prisoner out on parole. If you're out on parole, if you do one slip up, if you just violate one more time, we're going to put you back under the condemnation of all your past. I'm not on parole. I'm pardoned. If I slip up, I get to confess and get it right with God. But I'm not going back to the past condemnation. I'm not on parole. I'm pardoned. Hallelujah. We are a forgiven people. Have you ever sung the song, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted You were condemned. We have been redeemed in order that we might be free men and women whose only possible response is to fall in love with such a gracious God. That's all we can do. I disagree with this statement. I'm saved to serve. I'm not saying saved people will not serve. But that statement standing on its own, I can't agree with. I'm saved to serve. If the purpose of my redemption was to make a servant out of me, then I will say heaven paid too dear a price because God created angels to serve. He doesn't need to create me to serve. I'm not saying I shouldn't serve. I'm not saying you shouldn't serve. I'm not saying we shouldn't demonstrate our gratitude by serving. But I'm not saved to serve. If the goal was to make a servant out of me, heaven has paid too far a price because the Bible teaches me that at best I am an unprofitable servant. What does that mean, unprofitable servant? That means that I will spend 10,000 pounds training you. When I put you to work, you only produce 10 pounds productivity. You follow that? It takes me 10,000 pounds to train you, and after I get trained, all you can produce is 10 pounds of income. That's called unprofitable. We could never produce back for God to match the investment He has made in our hearts and in our lives. At best, we are unprofitable servants, and if the goal of God was to create servants out of us, He did a poor job. Because it takes far more investment in me than I could ever produce. At the best, we are unprofitable servants. Yes, we should serve. 
Yes, we will serve because we're grateful people. But no, that statement on its own, I can't buy it. I'll tell you what I do believe. God saved us for fellowship with Himself. Relationship. But you see, people would rather serve than be in relationship because they think it's safer. If I can just serve, I really don't have to expose my heart, you know. If I could just be busy doing something in the church that saves me from worshiping, you know, if I just, if I can just do a variety of things here and there, you know, and uh, it just keeps me occupied in my service for the Lord, but you never know how to be one with God. People hide behind service. You have been saved for relationship. You have been saved for fellowship. You have been forgiven that you might be His people. You have been forgiven that you might know His presence. How this should motivate us to worship. To yield our hearts to praise. This should make you shout for joy. And other times it will make you silent as you were overwhelmed in awe and wonder. Who cannot help but to worship such a loving God whose heart demands that He sacrifice Himself that He might forgive you and me of our sins. Oh, the cost that I might be forgiven. Nothing new today. I can only hope to make you worship Him. Let's stand.